Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today my guest is Dr. Stephanie Seneff, and we're going to be talking about her new book, Toxic Legacy. Dr. Stephanie Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT. She holds a BS degree from MIT in biology and PhD in electrical engineering and computer science. Her recent research interests are on the role of nutritional deficiencies in toxic chemicals and disease with a focus on the mineral, sulfur, and the herbicide glyphosate. We go through a deep conversation about glyphosate, and I hope that you check out her new book, Toxic Legacy. So welcome, Stephanie. It's always an honor to have you here. So great to be back. Thank you. Oh, well, you wrote another book. You're so prolific, and we've learned so much through your articles over the years, and now uh, this new book. And as we dive into the conversation, really, what inspired you to put this knowledge into a book today? Oh, gosh. It really began with me trying to figure out autism. I was really getting worried around 2006, 2007 timeframe with the autism rates going up and um, no, and nobody paying attention to environmental or very few people paying attention to environmental factors, blaming it all on genetics. You know, and genetics plays a role, but I knew that there was something in the environment that was causing the alarming rise. And I knew that if we kept doing that, it was going to be really big trouble. And it has kept going up every year since then. This is in you know, 2006, 2007, so like almost 15 years later, still going up and still just reporting every year. Oh, yeah, the rates went up. Of course, what else is new? It's not even news anymore. I wanted to figure out what was causing it. And I started with the vaccines. And I do think the vaccines are definitely a contributory factor. And, you know, you never know how much of a factor different things are because all these different toxic elements work together synergistically. So there's often more harm done when they're together than either one would do by itself or even that the two of them individually would do. When they mix up, they, they cause each other to be more toxic with all, many of these chemicals. And that's one of the problems we have is that we have so many chemicals that our children are bombarded with these days. But glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, was not one that I had thought of. I was looking for five years coming up short. I sort of understood a lot more about what autism is, but I couldn't figure out what was causing it. Feeling a bit frustrated. And it just was by chance. I happened to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber spoke on glyphosate for two hours. And I didn't know what glyphosate was when I walked into the room. And when I finished listening to his two-hour presentation, I was convinced I had found my answer. And I never looked back. Since then, I just basically almost dropped everything else and just poured my poured over the glyphosate literature, trying to get a sense of what this chemical is and how it works and how it causes and how it links and, and finding that it wasn't just autism, but there were many other diseases that are also going up. Of course, I knew people were getting fat, and I, but I wasn't connected. And then I realized they're getting fat in step with the rise in glyphosate as well. And around the world, that's happening. As soon as a country starts to adopt a Western diet, they start gaining weight. And there's many things wrong with the processed foods, but I suspect that glyphosate is a major player in the obesity epidemic as well. And it's certainly causing fatty liver disease, which is another epidemic that we have. And then there's Alzheimer's and there's, you know, gut problems, inflammatory gut, leaky gut, sensitivities to food, celiac disease, gluten intolerance, casein intolerance, all these people on special diets. All of this stuff adds up to the same thing, in my opinion, which is glyphosate, chronic glyphosate poisoning, maybe predominantly from the food, unless you live next to the agricultural field in which you're probably going to get COPD and asthma, and you're going to get lung effects because you're breathing it. And possibly also in the cities, because these days I suspect glyphosate's being released into the air in the cities because of biofuels. And that's another thing that I've picked up on since COVID-19. I really think there's a connection there between glyphosate in the biofuels glyphosate in the air as a consequence in the cities and then hitting getting hit hard by covid in the cities because of the glyphosate exposure from the air 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Pandora's box, right? As in the moment you started looking and unraveling the story, you could, you had to look elsewhere, not just in autism, but in all of these connections that you've made and you've, you know, educated me so much. And when I, you know, see patients with chronic illnesses, you know, we look at so many things and we look at, you know, there's a, whole, a lot of language around our immune system and, you know, what infections might be affecting people and all of that. And I, like you, have um, learned to see that, you know, the environment, and it's not just one thing usually if it was one thing even though glyphosate is a really strong common denominator but it's that in light of everything else that's weakening us right americans are weak right we're you know unhealthy we're not resilient and there's so many factors we're up against these days and so we can take this conversation so much direction and i think a lot of the people who are listening know of you and know of your work you know of glyphosate but just not to overassume, can you just share a little bit how why glyphosate became so widespread in agricultural use and we can talk about biofuels as well, but just why is it everywhere right now? Mm -hmm. Yes, and it really is because it appeared to be a really fantastic chemical, really the answer for agriculture, because it could kill all plants except those that were specially engineered through GMO technology to resist it. And it it was supposedly completely harmless to us. And the reason was because the enzyme that it affected in the plants was not an enzyme that our cells have. So it felt very safe that, oh, great, we're just wiping out this enzyme, very specific in the plants. Humans don't have that enzyme in their cells, so we're not affected by it. Yay, yay. We can just really use this chemical all we want and not worry about it. And in fact, the government is still doing that. They don't bother to test how much glyphosate is in the food. And they wait for the industry to complain that, oh my gosh, some of the food is hitting a higher than the threshold. You better raise the threshold. In Canada, they just did that. You know, they just said, oh, oh, okay, we'll make the, the amount of glyphosate that's allowed in chickpeas higher because we see it is higher in the chickpeas. So what can we do? We have to just make it legal. So we'll have to just raise the limit without ever even bothering to test whether it's a problem at any level. So it's just the industry just tells them to fix the regulatory limits so that we'll be safe. So our food will be able to be sold, you know, and who cares who's getting poisoned by it? Very frustrating. The government has just completely ignored it. They think it's not a problem. They, They love it. The United States uh, was really in there early and we were in there strong. We, we, were, we were the ones who really led the introduction of the GMO crops. And that was, so it, uh, glyphosate was patented as, a, as an herbicide by Monsanto in 1968. So that is a long time ago. And it was around 1974 that they started to introduce it on, our, on the market. And I think that was around the time we could actually buy it and put it on our dandelions in our yard as well. But it showed up in the food supply. It had to be used carefully on the food because it would kill the plant up until the late 1990s when they figured out how to engineer the plants to resist it by inserting a microbial gene into the plant, which was a version of that enzyme that was resistant to glyphosate that was came from a, a microbe. So this is the genetic engineering technology that really began about that time. Big boon for agriculture because they started making core crops, you know, corn, soy, canola, sugar beets, um, alfalfa, and cotton are some of the major uh, glyphosate resistant crops. And those are all mega crops with these huge fields, you know, with a chemical based agriculture where you just spray the crop all over the place with glyphosate, no problem because it's not sensitive because of that enzyme being fixed. And meanwhile, all the weeds die. You don't have to select for the weeds and avoid the plant. It makes, it makes agriculture much easier, makes food cheaper, and everybody's very happy except for all the consequences of all that glyphosate. And one thing they didn't realize was that the weeds were going to get smart. So they should have realized this because biology is like that. As the weeds got exposed year by year, glyphosate resistant weeds started appearing and it became, you had to kill with higher concentrations of glyphosate. So the usage kept going up over time dramatically in the first decade of this century, exponential growth in the use of glyphosate on our food. 
And they also got the idea of using it to spray crops. The crop itself killed the crop right before harvest. And that became popular with many crops, especially grains like wheat and oats and barley and chickpeas and garbanjo beans and, and, and uh, lentils, all those um, legumes. Those are all heavily contaminated with glyphosate. Any foods that have those in them are going to be heavily contaminated with glyphosate because it's right before harvest. They actually have higher levels than the GMO crops usually. So they're very dangerous. So hummus is something you think is very safe, very, very healthy, but you're probably getting a good dose of glyphosate if you're not eating organic hummus. That's overlooked. I sometimes don't think about that and educate patients. And so here we are, you know, since 1968, um, you know, glyphosate has been around. And as we're recording this, then, you know, 2021, you know, there's so many health effects. And then, as you said, the weeds are getting more resistant. And I'd love to take a moment too to just discuss the effects on the soil, right? As we learn more and more about the impact, you know, of the soil, not only on, of course, the terrain and the ecosystems of the farms, but also the health of our food and all the interconnection that we see. And, you know, I always think of this mirror, you know, when we look at our bodies and then look at the macrocosm and how we're interconnected and we look at, you know, there's all this information about our microbiome and our own internal soil. And then we kind of look at, hey, you know, there's no wonder, right? You know, we're, we're in the state. So can you just share a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing the trends in our soil, you know, especially in America based on this overuse of glyphosate? Right. I mean, I think it's a huge problem and it's, uh, it's, it's hurting the soil in many ways. One of them is as a chemical, as a chelator of minerals. So it's actually trapping the minerals and preventing the access to the minerals by the soil microbes. It's actually even interfering with some of the really important skills the microbes have to support the plant. So it's just like, that's kind of their gut. The soil is the, is the plant's gut. And one of the things that Don Hubert talked a lot about the soil, because he's a, he's a plant expert. He drew the analogy to the gut, which is when I got really interested because it said the soil bacteria getting wrecked and the gut bacteria getting wrecked. Very much of a parallel situation there. And when you wreck the soil bacteria and when you chelate the minerals, then the plants actually become very deficient in many critical micronutrients. And he showed plots of you know exposed, not exposed, huge drops in the, the uh, zinc, the iron, the cobalt. The sulfur, which really caught my eye because I'd seen the sulfur deficiency problem with the autistic kids. So our foods are depleted in these critical micronutrients. And worse than that, glyphosate messes up our body's ability to distribute those nutrients appropriately because those and these minerals are both toxic and essential. And the body has really fancy methods to carry them around, deliver them to where they go safely. And then to get them to the enzyme that can be catalyzed by the mineral in order to do its job. And those mechanisms are derailed by glyphosate. And so by glyphosate sort of holding onto and trapping the mineral, it prevents the, the, the gut microbes from gaining access. And for example, lactobacillus depends tremendously on manganese and glyphosate does a really good job of holding on to manganese. So when the manganese becomes deficient, the lactobacillus don't thrive. Mm. And those are really the core microbe that starts off with the infant's life and processes the milk. They provide all kinds of enzymes that are, are appropriate for digesting milk. And also the gluten, the grain, you know, we get in trouble with digesting wheat because the microbes that help us do that are getting wrecked by glyphosate. And studies have shown that lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, which are important gut bacteria, basic gut bacteria in the infant, are very sensitive to glyphosate compared to some other species that are more pathogens like Clostridia and Salmonella. They're less sensitive, so they get a better chance to catch on in the gut and to cause trouble. And the soil, there's all these soil bacteria, of course, as well. They also, various ones get hit harder than others. And so they get imbalanced, just like the gut gets imbalanced. And then, of course, they can't do their job to, to nourish the plants. And so the plants become deficient. And then the plants become sick. So the plants become actually more, less resistant 
resistant to other stressors, things like drought, things like heat, things like fungus. You know, there's a lot of fungus infections going on with the uh, plants. And of course, there's fungus infections in the animals as well. That's really an interesting one because we've had a kind of an epidemic in fungus infections in both animals and plants. And I think glyphosate is playing a major role there. And that's partly because the fungus like aspergillus, they can actually completely metabolize glyphosate and use its phosphorus as a source of fuel, a phosphorus for the fungus. So they have an advantage because they can metabolize glyphosate and get rid of it. And they don't get hurt by it for that reason, because they can break it down. Mm-hmm. So they're hardy. And then the, and when the bacteria get reduced in numbers in, in your gut, you know, candida, you can get yeast overgrowth, which yeah. we also have an epidemic in. A lot of people are having trouble with yeast infections of various sorts. And even, you know, like thrush in the mouth or... Um, yeast infection, reproductive system, you know, these kinds of problems for us, I think, are much more common because we're being chronically exposed to glyphosate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I didn't realize the connection with aspergillus and being able to, you know, break down the glyphosate. And yeah, there is a definitely from all of these different angles, you know, I see also a lot of fungal infections and also this is, may or may not be a topic to go down, but I see also a lot of environmental molds in sick buildings and sick houses and people. Right, I know, toxic mold, right? Yeah, toxic mold. I know. I think that's connected. I think the sensitivity to mold is much, much higher than it would be without the glyphosate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you go into that? Because we think about, you know, there's a lot of it, mold on this is so tricky, right? Because it can be one of the things that is really great to identify and understand that, oh, that's what's making you sick. And then there's a whole other thing of, you know, remediating the expense, the, you know, trauma, all of that. And then this idea of like, okay, resilience, right? You know, well, toxic mold isn't good for anybody, but how do we become more resilient to that so people can live, you know, more, you know, comfortably? And so what's the connection with the glyphosate making us more sensitive to these molds? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. That's a big uh, question with a lot of answers, but uh, (laughs) part of it it has to do with the chemistry of what we can and cannot do in the presence of glyphosate. And I think part of it is that glyphosate is disrupting certain pathways, biological pathways that causes certain molecules to have to go down a different pathway to get processed. And so there's a situation we can get an uh, overabundance of oxaloacetate Mm -hmm. because of a blocked enzyme. And I talked a lot about PEPCK in my book, uh, phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase, has tremendous parallels with the enzyme that glyphosate famously disrupts in the plants, you know, in terms of the exact mechanism, the place where the disruption happens in the PEPCK matches very well with the place with a place in PEPCK. So EPSP synthase and PEPCK have parallels with respect to binding to the same thing with the same, you know, situation with the glycine. There's a whole bunch of stuff I write about in my book. Yeah. What would suggest that glyphosate would suppress PEPCK. And if it does, it blocks a pathway that takes oxaloacetate into interesting places. So oxaloacetate builds up and then candida, for example, can convert oxaloacetate into, into oxalate. Mm-hmm. And then you get oxalate toxicity. And then you get all kinds of problems with high oxalate. Mm-hmm. So that's so you kind of get an overgrowth of candida plus high oxalate because of this blocked pathway, along with a bunch of other problems that it causes because the other pathway is not going. So chemistry goes all over the place and gets really mixed up when you've got a block because of a particular toxin that's suppressing a certain critical um, enzyme. And glyphosate suppresses a number of different enzymes, and each one has very, very interesting and complex consequences. And I write about some of it in my book. I try to keep the language as simple as possible for the non-biologists, but it's sometimes a little hard to keep it simple. But um, Mm -hmm. I worked hard on that aspect in my book. The fungus also, I suspect that they're helping us to clear debris Mm -hmm. because our own ability to clear the debris is broken. And that's one of the things I suspect is that glyphosate is disrupting our lysosomes 
ability to um, metabolize and break down damaged goods, you know, because your cell when it's living, it has oxidative damage and different proteins get oxidized and fats get oxidized and they have to be removed, broken down into basic elements and then built back up into something new. That's happening all the time in biology. So very, very critical for the cell to be able to clear debris, to keep itself healthy. And I suspect, and this is just sort of a, a hunch that I have, that when your own cells are not able to properly clear their debris, you know, fungus is really something that's working on dead things, right? So it's kind of like all this debris. Mm-hmm. I suspect that these molds have special skills to remove some of these broken molecules that have been damaged by glycation damage and oxidation damage and whatnot. The, the mold is able to remove it where, where the human cells are failing to remove it adequately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like, again, this, you know, if the, that wasn't there, we wouldn't overgrow, you know, potentially, you know, these yeasts and be sensitive to these molds as much. And yeah, there's always like that flip side, right? We think like, oh, we got to kill this. It's harming us. But it's like, oh, it's actually trying to help us, you know? And, yeah. I always think that there's some some bright side to all of these things that we think of as pathogens because they provide symptoms that we, we feel sick. Mm-hmm. And I think um, they wish they could do what they need to do without making us sick, but they're producing byproducts that they can't really help producing in order to clear other problems, you know? Mm-hmm. And then those byproducts can can cause disease. So it's a, if it's not a working machine the way it's supposed to work, it's very, very hard to kind of get around all those blocks where it's not working and figure out another way to do it that's going to achieve the same goal, goal of keeping you alive, keeping your blood circulating without causing pain. You know, it's very hard to do once you've got certain critical broken pathways mm-hmm. because of toxins like glyphosate. Mm-hmm. So Stephanie, what I've been seeing lately in my practice is definitely this rise in sensitivity. And when I think about the rise in sensitivity, a lot of us have a language around mast cells and how mm-hmm. mast cells are surveying, you know, all of these, you know, mucous membranes, these entry points in the body, almost like this first line of defense. And we make sense of it saying, oh, that mast cells can be more excitable when they're encountering, you know, molds or parasitic infections. And then what seems to happen is that there's a threshold that these mast cells get really excitable. And then they release all these compounds, one of them, which is histamine, and then create all of these symptoms that look like sensitivity in the patients. So I'm just curious if you put together any thoughts, glyphosate and the connection with mast cells, or even just how that could be disrupting that first line of defense in our uh, immune system. I think the mast cells are, are interesting because they seem to me, it seems to me they become active when the innate immune system is broken. And I feel, and I wrote a whole chapter in my book about how glyphosate disrupts the innate immune system. And so I think a lot of people in our country are walking around with a impaired ability of the macrophages and the dendritic cells, which are the ones that are really, you know, policing, looking for invasions and whatnot, looking for pathogens, keeping them in control. And those cells depend upon uh, their energy that they get from the, from the mitochondria. And then they'd also depend upon their lysosomes to clear whatever it is that they come up with. It could be either damaged tissues or it could be um, pathogens and whatnot. They have to actually break them down and clear them through the lysosomal system. So when there's not enough energy and there's not enough lysosomal clearance capability, they don't work. I mean, they get the, everything gets in trouble because these guys are not doing their job. And I think that's the situation that drives mast cell activation. And that part of the process of mast cell activation is to try to fix them try to fix the immune system. And this is something that I've been playing around with lately. And as you know, deuterium is something that I've been interested in. I think deuterium plays an important role in all of this. And I've become aware that the enzymes that glyphosate likely disrupts, and some of them has been shown experimentally that it disrupts certain enzymes that I happen to know are really important for maintaining low deuterium water inside the mitochondria. 
And the mitochondria depend upon low deuterium in order to stay healthy. Deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It has, it's, a, it's a proton with an extra neutron that makes it twice as heavy as the regular hydrogen. It has very different behaviors biochemically and biophysically. It's a natural element. Uh, it's just an isoform of, of hydrogen. And of course, it's in water. It's in all the water at varying level, levels. And uh, the body is used to having to deal with deuterium, but it needs to pay attention to it and needs to be able to sort it out. So it needs to be able to trap the deuterium uh, in gelled water and then to uh, be able to, to make molecules that have a low deuterium in their protons in those molecules. And the, and the enzymes that do that are disrupted by glyphosate. Many of them are. And so what happens is the mitochondria get loaded up on deuterium, they get sick. And then so in many studies have shown that glyphosate makes the mitochondria sick. And part of it is sort of oxidative damage, which you get when there's too much deuterium because the ATPase pumps don't work correctly. So that's sort of a long way around to getting to mitochondrial deficiency in the, in the macrophages, in the immune cells, the innate immune system, which weakens them, which makes them unable to do their job. And so when they are deficient, the mast cells are very interesting because they release all kinds of interesting things. And one of which is heparin. And heparin is the most highly sulfated molecule in biology. It's similar to heparin sulfate, which is all over the body. It's in the extracellular matrix of all the cells. It lines all the blood vessels. Heparin sulfate is so important. It's a very important signaling molecule. It attracts, it binds to different things that come through the blood and brings them into the cell, escorts them. It really facilitates the entry of all kinds of nutrients and whatnot, signaling molecules that the endothelial wall responds to. And they need the heparin sulfate to be sufficiently sulfated to work well. It makes the gelled water that keeps the blood vessel secure so that things don't leak, leak out and so that the cells are protected from whatever reactive ingredients might be in the blood. So when, the, when there's not enough sulfate, there's a real serious problem with the vasculature. And the mast cells are releasing heparin, which is helping to solve that problem. So I think that's a very interesting aspect of the mast cells that I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a whole nother angle too. again, you know, how physiology is trying to compensate for these deficiencies through all of these different mechanisms. And so I hadn't put that together. Uh, maybe the mast cells are helping us, you know, release heparin sulfate so we can deal with this deficiency that's so widespread because of the underlying glyphosate impairing our sulfate metabolism. And so I want to go back to deuterium for a minute because that is, you know, again, more and more widespread. And again, just another area of that awareness is more widespread, especially applied and two mitochondrial dysfunction and, you know, cancer and these chronic illnesses. And, and, and that makes sense because I, I kept on thinking about, okay, you know, if it's naturally occurring, yes, maybe we're overexposed to it, but, you know, where is the breakdown of why our bodies can't, you know, get rid of it as well as possible. And so again, another enzyme that's disrupted. I mean, it, it probably, I mean, when you think about all the enzymes in the body, glyphosate probably interacts and disrupts the majority of them, you know. know. It <laughs> pretty much affects all of them if I'm right yeah. about it getting into the protein by mistake in place of glycine, which is what I think is its critical demonic aspect of toxicity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that, how that, what that means to... Yeah, um, and in fact, that's a central part of book of the story in my book, Toxic Legacy. So I have a whole chapter devoted to providing the evidence that this is happening. And it comes from Monsanto's own research and a lot of um, different papers that I talked about in there that show, that make it very clear to me that that's really the best way to explain what, what is observed in the way the glyphosate affects things. And particularly that enzyme EPSP synthase that I mentioned earlier has a specific site where it binds phosphate, the phosphate of you know, PEP, phosphoenolpyruvate. It binds that molecule at a site where it has a highly conserved glycine residue. So glycine is one of the amino acids. It's the building blocks of the proteins. It's the smallest amino acid. It has no side chains. 
glyphosate is a glycine molecule. It's the same. It has no side chains, just like glycine. So it fits into the socket where glycine goes. And when the protein is being assembled and you see the code, it's a DNA code that codes for the different amino acids that go on into the protein like beads on a string. When the protein sees, when the assembly process sees the code for glycine, there's a glyphosate molecule sitting there and it sticks it in the place instead of glycine and ends up with this extra unit stuck off of the nitrogen atom outside of the socket. Because the nitrogen atom has to hook up so it can't go inside that socket, which is fortunate because I mean it's fortunate for glyphosate because now it can fit. You know, it, it doesn't matter that it has extra things on its nitrogen because nitrogen doesn't go into the socket where glycine fits beautifully. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it gets um the glyphosate puts its methylphosphonate stuff, which is the extra piece stuck onto its nitrogen, it puts it where the phosphate's supposed to go. There's room for it in the protein because the protein's prepared to receive a phosphate there. But glyphosate blocks now. It's got that piece sticking out into the site where the substrate's supposed to fit. Now the substrate can't fit and then the protein can't work. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, how I think that's how it affects the EPSB synthase. When you change those uh, GMO crops, they have a version of EPSB synthase that has an alanine where glycine should be. It's changed the code. So it's alanine, not glycine. And that version of the enzyme is completely insensitive to glyphosate which makes sense because the code doesn't match anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's a very strong argument that, uh, that it's happening. And then if it's happening, it turns out to explain a lot of the diseases that we see that are going up dramatically in step with glyphosate. It's a giant puzzle, but you can find different diseases that are associated with defective versions of certain proteins. And you can look at those proteins and see that they have highly conserved glycines at places where they bind phosphate. And you say, aha, glyphosate is disrupting that enzyme. And that's why it's causing that disease. So yeah. it's, it's a fun puzzle to put all that together. It requires a lot of reading of the research literature, but it's quite fascinating. And if I'm right, it's demonic. It's really, really terrifying because uh, glyphosate can mess up so many proteins in different ways and it can cause so many diseases. And, you know, people people say, well, you know, it's correlated. It's tremendous correlation, stunningly low p-values for the correlation between the rise in obesity and liver disease and kidney failure and Alzheimer's and uh, pancreatic cancer. I mean, all these diseases are going up dramatically. And mm-hmm. no one seems to be worried about the fact that they're going up dramatically. But what they say is, well, you know, glyphosate, it, one thing can't cause so many diseases. And then they say correlation doesn't mean causation. So they dismiss it that way. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, one thing can cause so many diseases if it does it through such a demonic way. You know, I as you speak, you know, I think of, again, all the, you know, the enzymes, the biochemical pathways that are disrupted. And then you see like our, you know, physical bodies are incorporated with life, you know, glyphosate, you know, if all if like we almost have like a visual scan of like how much, you know, where the glyphosate is and, you know, how much, you know, where it lights up in the body, you know, that could be you know, maybe get the point finally across that we become, you know, highly incorporated with glyphosate. And I think I shared with you one at one of our last talks that we did, I have a patient with scleroderma and which is an autoimmune connective tissue disorder. And so I just was very curious and I have this lymphatic machine. So I um, had to do the lymph work and then I had her collect her urine and her glyphosate was one of the highest glyphosate levels that I've seen in practice. And so it just kind of made me think, okay, that connection of that that condition, you know, amongst all these other conditions you shared. Right. That's very interesting because Anthony Samsel, you know, tests various exotic things for glyphosate. And one thing that he tested was the fingernails of Mm -hmm. a person with scleroderma and they were sky high with glyphosate. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Oh, that's really interesting. So Stephanie, you know, you name your book Toxic Legacy, right? And so I know that we all know a trajectory that we can be on, right? And, you know, when we follow this, it's quite disheartening and it's quite, you know, we can be hopeless, right, at times, right? But when you think about toxic legacy, how is this affecting, if we continue on this track, how is this affecting future generations? It's really, really uh, disturbing. Of course, of all, it's affecting fragility. I, I think there's no question in my mind that glyphosate is one of the big players there. Other things are also causing infertility, but we're in really bad shape with reproduction right now. In this country, we have very high rates of premature birth. We have actually high rates of maternal death You know, during pregnancy. We're, we're among the highest in the developed nations. It's affecting the male, female, the hormones. There's some very interesting things coming out with respect to hormones lately. One paper that's brand new, pretty much brand new, was on female infants born to mothers in America. And they evaluated the levels of glyphosate in the urine of the mother, a certain point in pregnancy, I think it was towards the end of the pregnancy, the uh, level of urine, level of glyphosate in the urine of the mother. And then they had a measure. There's a measure you can do that's a, it called the anogenital distance, which is the, how far apart you know, certain parts of the Mm-hmm. The system are. Yeah. And if it's long, it's an indicator of a sort of male-like tendency, which means excess ex, uh, exposure to testosterone in utero. It's a very known, well-known marker of testosterone exposure that you could you can get from girl babies. And they found a, a strong correlation between the amount of glyphosate in the urine. I was really surprised actually that they could just do that with one sample of glyphosate in the urine and see that correlation with the one with the child being looking like it had been exposed to too much testosterone in utero. And that's worrisome because that same feature is correlated with a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, which is something like 20% of the women suffer from this, mm-hmm. directly connected to reproductive issues. So that's a major cause of infertility in women is this polycystic ovary syndrome, which is connected to too much testosterone. And the thing is that glyphosate disrupts an enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen. So it was very clear reason why it would cause excess testosterone in utero. And the other thing is excess testosterone in utero is linked to autism in boys. It's sort of a super male, you know, syndrome, which affects the girls and boys differently, of course, but ends up with infertility in the girls and autism in the boys. So if we don't change the course, you know, we're only going to see more of this. You know, I definitely see, again, you know, the rise of infertility, more and more sick children, you know, more and more, you know, like just lack of quality of life within, you know, even healthy, you know, quote unquote healthy people, there's this like lowering of vitality. You know, I mentioned before we got on the call, Ron, I had the opportunity to go to Joel Salentin's farm in Virginia and spend a weekend there. And one of the things I was really just, you know, kind of awestruck is, you know, the health of the people who were working on the farm. They were like young men and women, and they were just like out of commercial, you know, like just really like, you know, fit and strong and bright eyes. And, you know, it, it struck me. I'm like, you know, you don't see that's not the norm, you know, anymore. I know. It's really yeah. sad, isn't it? I feel very depressed when I go to the airport, you know, and you yeah. see all the people in wheelchairs or with a cane and all the wheelchairs lined up to pick up the passengers coming off the plane, you know, it's just so yep. depressing. Yeah. People barely able to get around. It feels like a lot of people, especially the elderly, they just look so sick. And we've gotten used to the idea really that as you get old, you get sick, you know, mm-hmm. you lose your brain. Right? We have such a, and that's another one, Alzheimer's going up dramatically, Parkinson's disease, ALS, all these diseases are going up. It's mm-hmm. just really depressing. Mm-hmm. So if you were going to rewrite, you know, the course that we are on right now, 
what advice would you give us? <laughs> if you're a farmer, <laughs> get rid of the glyphosate. <laughs> but basically, I think everybody who becomes aware that this chemical is toxic, and then you have to become aware that all the other chemicals are toxic too. We can't just replace glyphosate with atrazine or 2,4-D or dicamba. They're all really bad too. So that's not the answer. You know, and I, I do fear that they might decide glyphosate is to uh, finally realize glyphosate's unsafe, ban it. And then we just turn to these other chemicals and just keep on using uh, herbicides in our agriculture. That would be such a wrong solution because we'll have a whole set of other diseases that will start to show up in high you know, concentrations as we get exposed to these other chemicals that, um, that are replacing the glyphosate. So we need to get rid of the whole concept of chemical-based agriculture. And I really uh, admire, at this point, I really admire young people who decide to buy a small farm, a few acres, and start growing crops, you know, mm -hmm. organic organic farming. I think we need a, the return in huge numbers of the small organic farmer. And I think it's actually, it's sort of an idyllic picture, right, of the little family farm with the apple orchard. I mean, it's sort of, um, it, it feels really idyllic. And I know it's tough to grow food. And right. right now, of course, it's even tougher than it used to be because the soil has been ruined all these years. Mm -hmm. There's lots of drought, you know, there's, there's uh, hurricanes and tornadoes. We just have so much more extreme weather. Mm -hmm. now than we used to have, which makes farming more challenging. And the soil is in bad shape. It erodes more easily because it's lost the topsoil. The topsoil is eroding very quickly. Glyphosate is contributing to that too, because it's really cutting back on the organic matter in the soil, you know, and that's so crucial for soil health. So mm -hmm. building compost heaps, I guess, would be the other thing to do to try to build up the soil. So try to get into the mode of, um, of recycling your, whatever you can use in your garbage to make uh, compost heaps. And um, which I don't really know how to do. So I'm speaking out of ignorance there. <laughs> but, uh, and of course, eating certified organic is sort of easy. I mean, I think that's relatively easy. These days, there's a lot of choices. I'm really pleased about that. The amount of certified organic that's available in major grocery stores has really gone up in the last 10 years. I've seen the rise and you can get just about anything. You know, you'd be, it's at least if you live in a relatively, <laughs> you know, not in the boonies or something, you can get at major grocery stores, a lot of, a lot of things you would need to cook certified organic. There's very few things you can't find certified organic. And often if we can't find it, we order it on the web. That's another way to get it is to get it from the internet. And that's a huge space. I don't, I, I like the idea of buying your food locally. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a trade-off there. If you can't find it locally organic, you might need to order it from someplace far away. <laughs> We've been known to do that. <laughs> we are very careful about eating organic in my family. And um, I think that's super important. And of course, also not eating processed foods goes mm -hmm. with it, eating whole foods. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not in favor of any kind of imbalance, like, you know, vegetarian or, or carnivore. I think a mixture of all the different food classes mm -hmm. is appropriate. But I think a heavy dose of herbs and spices um, mm -hmm. because they have really exotic molecules. And many of those can actually help to fend off COVID-19, the herbs mm -hmm. and spices. They're very and they make your food really interesting, too. So things mm -hmm. like coriander and basil and. Mm -hmm, more flavorful. And I want to talk about the herbs and spices to help our immunity in um, just a moment on the, you know, the idea of us getting more in touch with our food system. And again, from, you know, inspiration from that conference was around this whole regenerative agriculture. Yes. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, I'm from the you know perspective, oh, the body can heal, it can regenerate no matter what. And, you know, Mother Earth can too. And even Joel's farms, um, you know, was over farmed and it was clay when he started and he regenerated the soil. It took a few years, but 
you know, it's this movement of livestock and biodiversity of plants mm-hmm. and, you know, different species and, you know, just another theme and, you know, our bodies and nature. And so, so it's possible, you know, it's, you know, the, the, you know, land is forgiving. Um, if we, again, go back to principles of nature and farming with nature and regenerative agriculture, but it's going to take a really Herculean effort at this point, which again is possible. Mm-hmm. The education through the book, like um, that you've created and also all the amazing work that you continue to put out. Well, we, we're going to get there, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. We have we will. We may get there quickly. I almost hope that, you know, I think there may be, as you know, Jeffrey Smith talks about a tipping point. And I'm, I'm thinking that as more and more people wake up and as young people think that, you know, being a small farmer uh, is really a good thing to, to do, be a family farmer. And they really have to rise to the challenge to do that. And it's really a very challenging task. It's not like something, you know, it's something to be proud of, to be able to grow food organically on a small farm with a variety of different foods. And and working in the animals and the plants, like like Saladin does, you know that whole that whole area is really very very interesting and exciting, and I hope it will draw a lot of talent. You know, as a really good career choice that will help to save the world. It's almost the most important thing you can do. It feels sort of stupid to be writing computer code at this point. It's just like holding up toilet paper in a hurricane. You know. <laughs> I know. I know. Joel was funny. He was just like, you know, someone at the top of their class, we don't often say go and be a farmer, you know, like we're just are so kind of like, you know, divide, you know, we're just not, it's not in our face and every day, you know, so I think. I know. I think it's actually inappropriate that we, we think of it as sort of a, you know, we think of being an educated person as not being someone who has a farm and that's, in a, that's really not right. You know, it's a wrong concept. I think people should be very honored to be a farmer and people should be very proud of people who are farmers, you know, relatives who are farmers, they should really be proud of them, especially, of course, certified organic, regenerative, all those things. That's really very difficult job to carry out well. And it can be very challenging and interesting and rewarding, I would think, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Stephanie, you know, obviously, you know, we have a lot to do, you know, we have a lot to continue to educate and learn. And one of the most empowering things that we can do for our resilience is to avoid glyphosate um, in our food, you know, make all the choices to help make that more mainstream. And you mentioned some things because as we record this, you know, COVID is still, you know, top of mind for so many people. And so what are some, you know, empowering things that you'd like to share about what you've learned, either, you know, some lifestyle things or some other tips and tools to have a healthy immune system? Right. And we've mentioned the certified organic food and eating a variety of foods with a lot of um, herbs and spices and also a lot of fermented foods are healthy too. So sauerkraut and apple cider vinegar, organic, very uh, useful for helping to maintain a healthy gut. Mm-hmm. And um, seafood is extremely uh, high nutrient density, clams and oysters and crabs and, and lobsters and all of those good things. Those are uh, very nutritious. Of course, certified organic eggs, they're very, very, very good food for that's not terribly expensive. So I think that's really something to um, enjoy, certified organic eggs and, and grass-fed beef. I mean, I think that all the animal-based foods are very healthy and um and then, of course, there are lots of uh, salad greens and things like that and uh, radishes and just various. Um, we eat salads very generously, like every day we have a big salad with our dinner in my household. And uh, bone broth is another one that's really fun to get some organic beef bones or chicken chicken carcasses and cook it for a long time, slow cook in, in water and add some veggies and uh, make a delicious soup, uh, bone broth. And ginger and um, garlic are really good spices to use. Onions, gin- ginger and garlic are all very healthy. So mm-hmm. it's herbs and spices and uh, and fermented foods and bone broth, and those are all really, really good foods. So I guess it's kind of stay away from the carbs. Don't need a lot of sugar. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, don't eat refined foods. Processed and refined foods, I think, are mm-hmm. are not good. And mm-hmm. so, but diet is really, really important, and it could do a lot of healing. A matter of um, sunlight, sunlight exposure is something I'm very big on. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I really encourage people to get out in the sun without sunscreen, without sunglasses, um, because as, as I talk about in my book, the sun stimulates the um, system to make sulfate, mm-hmm. and then you make cholesterol sulfate and vitamin D sulfate, which are really, really crucial for your health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. principles of nature right um living close to the land connected with nature the rhythms and cycles of life and yeah making time right i think we need to get outside more and you know get get our feet in the ground and you know that has walk to- in the water <laughs> walk in the ocean <laughs> yeah. barefoot yeah. in the water in the ocean very very healthy thing to do if you live near the ocean absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely so stephanie you always share so much and i always learn so much in our conversations and can you just share i mean you wrote an amazing book that even goes deeper into a lot of the themes that we just um, talked about. But can you just share where people can find your book and any other last insights or inspirations around um, your new book? Mm. Well, so it's available on Amazon, of course, and it's also available on the publisher's website at Chelsea Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a, a page on my webpage, stephaniesenef.net slash book, where I have um, links to various books. Obviously, if you don't want to buy from Amazon, there's other choices. <laughs> and uh, it's in some people's bookstores, too, I've heard. So physical copy from your bookstore might be a possibility. Yeah. And so, so the book was really a long time coming. It took me, uh, you know, 10, over 10 years of studying to get to the point where I could write it, another two years of writing it. So it's been a pretty big project. First year I wrote it way too technical, way too long. And then I had to spend a whole year <laughs> fixing it. So that was quite painful. So, I mean, I'm proud of the product and I hope that um, people will find it enjoyable as well as uh, informative. And and I really hope it will help to get our legislators to straighten up their story and stop stop selling, stop allowing this chemical to be on the market. It needs to be banned worldwide. And we need to really, really change the way we grow food across the globe. Mm. Well, thank you. I know this was an enormous amount of energy and effort and really, you know, the combination of your life's work, you know, in this book, and we can't thank you enough to putting it all in words. And we'll have all the information in the show notes and how to find you and your new book, Toxic Legacy. And thank you so much for having this time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Stephanie Sinna. Please go check out her book, Toxic Legacy. There's information in the show notes. And again, if you've been enjoying this podcast, I would be so honored if you would write a review on iTunes. Have a beautiful day.